Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. The Dumas Brothel, a building that was designed to stand out, to draw attention. It features four large windows framing the entrance. It's a two-story Victorian brick building with copper dentals along the roof. It has a long, legendary reputation as a house that sold sensual pleasure to both the well-to-do and common miner alike. The building was constructed to be three levels. Its design intended to maximize the space for sex-for-pay transactions, a lucrative endeavor with the mining industry expanding. The main floor features sizable chambers connected by large pocket doors which could be opened for gatherings but closed again to create individual rooms. Along the main hallway, large windows showed available women to choose from and satisfy any desire. Since 1890, it has been a working brothel, well past the time when prostitution was considered legal, and it opened as a parlor house. In the United States, this brothel has been operating for 92 years. Founded and run by Canadian entrepreneurs Joseph and Arthur Nadeau, the brothel became so profitable that the owners moved from landlords to capitalists to real estate owners, earning enough money to buy more properties. The upper floor of the establishment consisted of a range of spacious rooms and suites, as well as a sizable balcony bathed in natural light from the skylights. Servicing those of moneyed means, this was an ideal venue for those seeking to satisfy their amorous needs with an attractive and alluring companion. Businessmen and politicians alike frequented here to get to know the women better before taking them away to a more luxurious environment. The expectant ladies would occupy one of the salon rooms while they awaited their next selection. A common man's sexual desires were met in the basement area from 1890 to 1942. In the basement of the Dumas brothel, miners with less money could enjoy sex with the not-so-pretty prostitutes and older ones who worked out of a tiny cubicle called cribs that were just big enough for a bed. 
The cribs operated around the clock with three women's shifts, catered to the larger demand during weekends and on paydays. It was an efficient arrangement as miners worked in three shifts to the mines. To ensure extra privacy, a stairway from the front sidewalk led to a basement door which opened onto underground tunnels that spanned the entire city of Butte. These passageways would transport visitors unseen to other brothels and even City Hall. The women involved were only entitled to 40% of their earnings, but often received generous tips from grateful clients. This allowed them to dress stylishly so they could easily fit in with accepted society. Sandra was a French woman, probably smuggled into the country by the owners of the brothel. She wasn't very tall, but she had become a hit with her customers due to her knowledge of techniques that provided great satisfaction. She made a decent living until she retired at 61. When authorities found out that she was here illegally, they would send notifications to the politicians to not attend the Dumas Brothers brothel that night before coming to look for her. Sandra would hide in a specially made refrigerator, and she was never caught. Business was bustling in the red light district, which was situated along Mercury and Galena Streets, east of Main Street and west of Arizona Street. An inexpensive one-story extension was attached to the rear of the building with eight small chambers. Four of them led right into Venus Alley, a favorite haunt for miners who would amble down to purchase a girl for the night from the Dumas brothel or any of the other brothels located behind the buildings. It's kind of like a shopping center. Each prostitute enticed her customers by standing in the entrance of her crib, shouting out an invitation to have a good time. By 1922, the Nadu brothers' wealth had increased to the extent that they could form the Nadu Investment Company and purchase several buildings in the red light district. One such structure was the Copper Block, located at Galena and Wyoming. This large brick building housed a saloon on its first floor, with the second floor providing quarters for the brothel's prostitutes when they weren't working. In addition to receiving 40% of the girls' trick fees, the Nadus also got some money back from rent payments made by these ladies and other nearby ladies of questionable repute. All public houses of ill repute in the United States were closed in 1942 to protect the war effort, and brothels had to change how they were operated as a result. Many of the once open brothel establishments in Butte experienced a sharp decline in business as the vice industry boomed. The underground passages were closed and only the red bricks of the original Venus Alley remained. As well as knocking down the cheap addition behind the Dumas brothel, the cribs in the basement were sealed as well. Everything left behind by the women were still there, creating a time capsule. The first and second floors remained discreetly open for business, but the action simply moved upstairs, making it difficult for the law to prosecute them if they wanted to. In the now brothel, known as the Dumas Hotel, clients would come in the front door, be examined through a door hole, and then were led into a parlor where a few available women would sit, waiting for them to choose. To the client's disappointment, there was no more window shopping. Due to all the single miners still working in the mines, various owners were able to make a living at the Dumas Hotel. A woman with both a heart and business mind, Ruth Garrett, bought the Dumas brothel in 1971. She regarded herself as a landlady and took care of the girls, fighting for them. She ensured that her employees were safe and that they were not abused by the men. 
As a result of an abusive marriage, she had shot her husband in 1959 after receiving a terrible beating from him. The verdict was for manslaughter, and she served nine months in jail. Mining work was dwindling, but despite this, Ruth Garrett managed to keep the Dumas Brothel Hotel going, even as many of the older buildings in the former Red Light District were demolished. That was until 1982, when she found herself facing tax evasion charges and was sentenced to six months in prison. This certainly hit her business hard. However, it was an armed robbery of the hotel of the same year which spelled the end for the Dumas Brothel. With Butte Silver Bow Sheriff finally shutting her down, Ruth did not harbor any resentment towards them. Unable to reopen her brothel, Ruth was resigned to its being taken back to pay back taxes. Yet in 1990, she sold the building to a pair of Butte antique dealers, Ruby and Jason Geisick, with the condition that they turn it into a museum and restore it to its former glory. During the restoration process, they opened up the basement and the cribs that had been sealed away, discovering the time capsule that reveals what it was like to be in a brothel at that time. One of the parlors became a store for their antiques. Eventually, they opened the Dumas Brothel Hotel as a museum and ran it successfully for 20 years. Striving to make this abandoned property livable again, the Geisics undertook all restoration works they could afford, keeping this old gal afloat for many, many years. This continuous fixer-upper opportunity was purchased by Travis Eccleson and Michael Piche in June of 2012. I probably mispronounced that guy's last name. Still in the need of a boatload of money to not only pay back taxes, but to restore and preserve a building that is so important to Butte's history. They're dreaming of opening up a bed and breakfast called Dumas Brothel Bed and Breakfast. For various reasons, some of the spirits associated with this historic building have noticed their efforts and attempted to be noticed. It is possible that some may be supportive. Others may be concerned about the changes that are coming. And one lady felt ashamed and anxious about how the new owners would judge her for what she had done to herself. They say that a renovation of a structure, which causes big changes, can trigger paranormal activity. Living and working in the oldest profession, in most cases, in a brothel, wasn't a happy life, no matter how well the sex workers were treated. The woman could also become pregnant, suffer complications from an opium-induced abortion, develop venereal disease, or even end up with a jealous boyfriend or client who may murder her. When people die unexpectedly on a job, they sometimes continue working. The second floor women had a higher class of clientele, but the basement women might have encountered a few bad apples with anger management issues. A blood-stained handprint can still be seen on the inner wall of one of the crib rooms, which was also badly damaged by a door jam. It was Ruby and Jason who discovered this when they opened up the basement crib. There is a strong possibility that a prostitute was killed in her crib by a mad client, a family member, or an angry supervisor of brothel collections. Despite their sordid pasts, these soiled doves were trapped in the lowest of society's occupations unless one of their clients fell in love with them enough to marry them. They often didn't find the peace and relief from grief and disappointment on the other side, and remained restless in this world, still feeling the shame for what they did to themselves or what others did to them because of their choices. In the absence of a husband by the age of 30, Many prostitutes killed themselves. 
when the husband-to-be chickened out or died before he could marry them, they would kill themselves as well. Since medication was not regulated at this time, some may have accidentally killed themselves to alleviate their emotional pain. During 1955, Madame Eleanor Knott fell in love with a married businessman. On the day of their escape, he lost his nerve, changed his mind, and never picked her up. Eleanor was devastated and lost hope of ever leaving her situation. She committed suicide shortly after. During 1917, Sarah, who was a young prostitute who worked at the Dumas brothel, met a man named James. James sent Sarah a love letter that was on display in Sarah's old crib. The day after she received the letter, James died in a mine explosion. She and her former client, now beloved, made plans to get married. It appears that Sarah either overdosed or intentionally killed herself with her favorite opium-based drug, used by women to medicate themselves or to cause abortions. Male entities of minors seemed to enjoy reliving their special recreation with their favorite lady in the basement after they died, as ghosts of men in minor gear are said to have been seen walking the basement corridors. Over the years, witnesses have reported many personal experiences with the spirits in the building. From shadows moving on the walls to reassuring moments of friendly, small, unseen hands taking people's hands gently and guiding them through the brothel. Several clear, unmistakable photos of female entities and two male entities can be found on the Dumas Brothel Hotel Museum website. And EVPs of female entities were also captured. At the request of the new owners, Michael and Travis, the haunted collector team investigated the former brothel. The team uncovered various pieces of evidence that implicated that Sarah was the most troubled of all the spirits. An EVP was recorded in her room, and when an investigator picked up a letter from James, her minor beau who was killed in the explosion, the bed inexplicably shook, which was captured on video. A bottle containing an opium derivative found nearby suggested that she might have been greatly distressed after hearing of the minor disaster. It is speculated that she has either taken the medication to calm herself or to take her own life. According to the team, Sarah's nerves and shame were caused by this bottle of opium-based medication. The evidence of her accidental overdose or suicide was taken from her sight when they removed it from the building, and it made the spirit feel much better. Her restless activity, which was scaring the living, stopped, much to the relief of the new owners. Hey folks. Taking a pause in the middle here because I have some exciting news to tell you. Well, first of all, Halloween's coming, so I mean, buckle up for that. I know a lot of people have been messaging me like, "Hey, where's episode six of Zach Bane? Why isn't Zach Bane?" I have so okay. I have some explaining to do. Basically, I have been putting off Zach Bane because it's I'm afraid to end it. That's that's 100% honest. I'm afraid to end the story. I'm afraid I'm going to let people down. I'm afraid no one's going to like it. And I'm also going to be afraid that people are going to lose interest in it after it's done. So, but putting those fears aside, Zach Bain will be ending. The episode six of Zach Bain will conclude when it began on Halloween. So we have that to look forward to. Also, 
I wanted to just give you guys an update on the direction the show is heading. Um, Haunted American History in its bones is exactly about that. The haunted history and folklore and stories that have been passed down based on actual events. With the state by state, I'm visiting some of these places and that's getting, you know, a lot of great feedback. People are really digging, you know, learning about places that they're from, places that they didn't know about, or places that they did know about that they just enjoy hearing about. So that those kind of things are gonna continue. What is not gonna continue here is the is my my original stories. But that doesn't mean that they're going away. They are going to a new home, a new podcast that I am starting that I'm hoping to launch around. I'd like to say Halloween, but probably sometime in November, maybe December, maybe earlier. If it's earlier, I'll let everybody know. It's the show is called The Nightmare Collective. The Nightmare Collective is going to be stories, original story. That's it. Just original stories written by myself and my cohorts from Zoning Out. So myself, Frank, John, Justin. Each month, each of us are going to submit a story to the Nightmare Collective, narrated by either myself or if one of the authors wants to narrate it, that's what's going to happen, but that's it. It's just going to be us. There will be no guest authors. So you're getting four original stories a month written by us. And all the familiar characters that you've come to enjoy from Haunted American History, well, you know what? They have a new home. So we're going to continue some of... I'm going to, I'm going to continue some of my stories on that channel, bring you all new stories on that channel, and yeah, so... And I'm so excited to see what the other guys are going to bring. And I guarantee you, you guys are going to love them. If you like my stories... You'll like their stories. We're all of similar kind of sensibilities when it comes to horror and fantasy and science fiction. So that's what you're going to get over there. The Nightmare Collective. Look out for it. I'm I'm posting up a trailer for it within the next day or so. So if it's live by the time this episode comes out, the link will be in the show notes. Um, But yeah, you're still going to get me telling my spooky folklore and stories related to folklore here but my original stuff that doesn't have any kind of folklore basis that's going to be on the nightmare collective and i hope you guys join me there because it's going to be great all right again folks can't thank you all enough for the kind words that you've been showering me oh people have been wishing my daughter a happy first birthday which is so great thank you guys so much i appreciate it i appreciate the words um yeah so thank you all again look out for the nightmare collective and let's continue with uh, montana later folks hey folks you guys know i'm always diving into the dark corners of history unearthing the stories that are sure to chill mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion it's a craft that's why i turned to masterclass Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part? 
is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Bannock, Montana. This ghost town has around 20 structures and noteworthy attractions that have been preserved and stabilized, but not restored. For a fee of $2, tourists may purchase a self-tour guide brochure at the State Parks Visitor Center to read about the history of each place. With raised wooden plank sidewalks, visitors can get up close and personal with these buildings. They can even enter each house and structure as they please to see what's inside. Moreover, Curious tourists are able to access the upper floors of some houses and the Mead Hotel. Many of the buildings are just shells. However, there are a few like the combination mason slash schoolhouse building that have left behind items to indicate what it was once used for. The Methodist Church is one such standing entity that was built in 1877. To this day, it still welcomes events and presentations with its comfortable atmosphere. Inside, it is tidy and up-to-date with wooden seats for attendees. All of this is due to Brother Van, who saw a chance to create something special and made it happen. No doubt he would feel satisfied seeing what his efforts have achieved. When gold was discovered in Grasshopper Creek by John White and fellow members of the Colorado Pikes Peakers, the beginning of Bannock was started in 1862. In 1863, Bannock was home to nearly 3,000 people, and it was on its way to becoming a thriving city. In November 1863, Bannock's post office was established, and its name was registered with Washington, D.C. Since the area was growing so rapidly, territorial officials were unable to establish effective government, resolve disagreements between people, or even deal with outlaws who had attitudes towards others because of its rapid growth. Even though Chief Justice Sidney Egerton lived in Bannock during 1863, he was unable to support local authorities because no federal marshals were on hand to enforce the law. It was the miners' responsibility to organize and form organization to police themselves to prevent trouble among them. It was called the Miners' Court. It established very simple, simply just laws regarding mine claims, which stopped a lot of trouble which happened in other towns. People were killed over mine claims. As a result of the boom in Bannock's population and wealth, the town became the county seat of Beaverhead County. By 1881, the gold rush had ended, and Bannock became a ho-hum town. It was then that Dillon became the county seat. The economy of Bannock was heavily reliant on the mines. As production declined, its population gradually diminished until the eventual closure of both the town and the mines in 1940. 
Despite this, a group from Western Montana began attempting to preserve key buildings in 1947. By 1954, with assistance from the courts, who had ordered the mining company to put up Bannock for auction, a collective involving people from Dillon and local areas successfully purchased it. When the Hotel Mead was built in 1875, this elegant two-story brick structure had one purpose, to be the first Beaverhead County Courthouse. Bannock, at that stage, served as the county seat, like I said. But in 1881, Dillon was chosen instead, as it had already become a prosperous freight hub and was continued to expand. The building remained vacant until 1890, when Dr. John Singleton Mead took ownership, and he carried out renovations and opened it as a swanky hotel. As the town's social center, the Mead Hotel brought a sense of civility to the community, as well as providing a place to stay for visitors. As the hotel's clientele grew, a large kitchen, dining room, and living quarters were added to the back of the building to accommodate the growing clientele. To accommodate the growth, the hotel was host to major social events and receptions. Tables seated four to six people in the main dining room, which could be moved and rearranged to accommodate larger parties. Fine white linens and lovely china were used for customer dining. The building has also been used as a makeshift hospital at times during its long history. In the years when the mines were open, the Hotel Mead was open and bustling, and closed in the years that it wasn't. The Hotel Mead closed in 1940, and that's when the people left the town for good. On August 4th, 1916, Dorothy Dunn drowned in a dredge pond near Grasshopper Creek. When they decided to go swimming on this fateful day, she first appeared to her best friend, who witnessed Dorothy's drowning. Today, Dorothy Dunn is mainly seen by children. Grasshopper Creek runs along Hotel Mead's property line, and on August 4th, 1916, Dorothy Dunn drowned in it. When her and her friend decided to go swimming on that fateful day, after her drowning, she first appeared to her best friend, who witnessed the drowning. Today, Dorothy Dunn is mainly seen by children. Dorothy is dressed in a blue dress and tries to converse with them. She is also said to be looking out of the second-story window, as she has been seen from the large front room with the balcony, which overlooks the street. Since she was the daughter of the hotel manager at the time, she probably had access to the large suite in the front. With his recording equipment, psychic researcher Greg Birchfield climbed the front staircase alone to the second floor in the evening. There he felt a presence and a cold spot. As he was using an EVP, he asked, Is anybody there? And the teenager's accented voice answered him. There is another older woman who haunts the second floor as well. Visitors have seen her peering through the windows, but little is known about her. There have been sounds of crying children all over the hotel. Maybe these are impressions left over from the days when the building was used as a hospital. Or maybe they are the spirits of the children who died there. Perhaps psychic impressions left over from the Indian attack scare, when some children were hidden in hotel safes. It might be that Dorothy has spiritual company. Other entities unable to leave the hotel because they loved it so much when they lived there. Is Dr. John Singleton Mead still around to watch over the living who visit his hotel? Or perhaps it was another owner or frequent guest. On Greg Birchfield's website, 
It is mentioned that the doors upstairs are barricaded because of supernatural events that have taken place there. Perhaps there are still a couple of entities that call the hotel home, and they don't wish to be visited by the living. The nearby Krishman store is a building which formerly housed the general store. It had offices in the back which were frequently used by the infamous Henry Plummer. Henry was a prospector, lawman, and outlaw in the American West. He was known to have killed several men. He was elected sheriff of Bannock in 1863 and served until 1864, during which he was accused of being the leader of a gang of outlaws known as the Innocents, who preyed on shipments from Virginia City, Montana to other areas. In response, some leaders in Virginia City formed a vigilance committee and began to take action against Plummer's gang, gaining confessions from a couple of the men and they arrested them in early January of 1864. On January 10th, Plummer and his two associates were arrested in Bannock by a company of vigilantes and they were hanged by the neck. Plummer was given a posthumous trial in 1993, which actually led to a mistrial. The jury was split 6-6. Anywho, during the 19th century era, it was typical for men to do their shopping for the families and this store was no exception. It became a hub of social activity as men congregated there to purchase necessary supplies, conversations around various topics of interest as well as sharing local news that took place over the warm atmosphere of the fireplace. This store provided an informal news bureau, university, and social settlement for the town. According to researchers, some entities continued to bond and enjoy their friendship in front of the fireplace. There are photographs of groups of foggy ghosts in the general store, having a deep conversation standing around pieces of furniture. At 4200 Bannock Road sits the Bassett House. This house was the home of longtime Bannock resident Abed Amity Bassett, who was one of the original vigilantes who stopped Plummer's murderous practices. During his entire lifetime spent in Bannock, he was a stockman who raised sheep, and he once owned the famous bank exchange saloon and Hotel Mead. He died in Bannock in 1919. When typhoid fever, diphtheria, and other killer diseases swept through the town, killing the vulnerable, especially the elderly and the young, he allowed his house to become an official quarantine house because he cared about his town. It was here that people who were ill stayed until they recovered or died. The house is haunted, they say, by all the children who died during the various epidemics that swept through the town during the 1880s. Plummer came to Bannock after a six-month prison sentence for killing his girlfriend's husband. He was an East Coast transplant and the son of a sea captain. He worked hard in a bakery, earned enough money to buy a ranch from his mining claim, was well-liked and admired. And at the age of 24, he was elected sheriff and he was then re-elected in 1857. As a result of taking something that he was not entitled to, another man's wife, he got into a duel with the angry man and killed him. He was convicted and sent to San Quentin for 10 years. In spite of his tuberculosis, the good people petitioned for his release, saying it was in self-defense, and due to this petition and the fact that he had TB, he was released after six months, a changed man. Prison life was brutal, but it didn't deter him. After his release from prison, Henry Plummer embraced the worst aspects of his character. He squandered what little money he had and devoted himself to a life of crime. Joining a gang, he began robbing stagecoaches. 
the first of many groups with which he would involve himself. In San Quentin, he made some unscrupulous associates, one of whom reconnected with him in 1862 during his time in hiding from justice in Idaho. January of 1863 saw him arrive in Bannock, where his charm and personality gave rise to acceptance from the locals. So much so that they elected him Sheriff Henry Plummer. In this role, he was able to take advantage of law for his own gain. He had no problem enlisting the help of his old prison pal and an estimated 25 thugs to form the Innocents, a gang he led while posing as the lawman. Together, this misfit crew were said to have perpetrated numerous criminal acts, including murder and robbery, all over the gold camps. In this mining town filled with honest folks trying their luck and the others of darker character, deserters from the Civil War, river pirates, gamblers, outlaws, and villains, it wasn't hard to build up his team. The evidence left no doubt in the minds of the people of the town that Henry was linked to these wicked felons, so something had to be done. Consequently, on December 23, 1863, the founding members established the Vigilante Committee and formed a posse from Virginia City and Bannock with James Williams as the executive officer. By late January, they had caught and punished 24 robbers via public execution. They had become suspicious of Plummer, and they had caught on to his exposure after all this, and he was hanged alongside two deputies up on the hill above Bannock. His body was then buried in a box in Hangman's Gulch at just 27 years old. At the time, some deemed the quick justice necessary, given that local government would not lend a hand to protect against murders and robberies occurring. Some are less certain that Henry Pummeler was involved in these events due to the frail evidence presented, which in today's legal system would definitely not stand up. Nevertheless, it is speculated that members of the vigilante committee were responsible and, yet again, this lacks any proof. Still, looking at Plummer's prior history of thievery and killings provides grounds to believe that he could have been the one orchestrating these events. After the demise of the innocents, the robberies continued for a short while by other gangs, until a stronger arm of the law eventually intervened to control them. A group of vigilantes living in Bannock were instructed in 1867 not to hang people. This was also not to be tolerated, so it was stopped as well. They say the ghost of Henry Plummer still haunts Bannock, particularly Skinner Saloon, a favorite hangout of him and his road agents. Some say they see Henry wandering around the courthouse. Some speculate that he may be trying to clear his name. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History.